Hello, and welcome to the YDN's Black History Month special issue. This special issue is meant to be for Black people, from Black people, showcasing the unity of the diaspora and the beauty of Black resistance. Today, I have the privilege of sitting down with Daishan Harris, New Haven urban farmer and owner of Root Life. Daishan, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Peace, everybody. It's um, Daishan Harris, and I am an urban farmer. I've been urban farming for the past, a little bit over 10 years now, actually, in New Haven, Connecticut. I am a New Haven native, and I do a lot of different things as far as like growing produce, organic produce for sale, indoor growing, outdoor growing, youth programming around agriculture. I work with community gardens to get them up and running, um, to manage them, to consult with them. And I also do a lot of um, nature work. I get community into nature. Um, and that could be anything from like foraging to just, just healing energy around just being out and reconnecting with the land. Okay. Thank you so much for coming here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what Root Life is sure. and how you got into gardening and agriculture? Indeed. So I think I'll start with the latter question first. So I got my bachelor's in political science at an HBCU called North Carolina A&T State University. And while there, I was able to be taught by some very prominent civil rights leaders during that time frame. And so they taught me one very important thing among many, and that is the importance of being sovereign over your own food system. And that stuck with me while I was there. Also, around that time, I had started diving into my family history. Uh, my grandmother is a favorite person of mine for certain. Her light is so bright. It's like the sun. And I just wonder one day after getting into the adult world, like what kind of upbringing would Rays a light this bright, you know, um, that's this unique compared to everything else that I've been seeing in the world. And I found out that she was raised with 13 of her siblings on a farm in Powhatan, Virginia, which is right outside of Richmond. And it's named after the indigenous people who lived on that land before the colonizers came. And so come to find out that her parents were able to provide food, clothing, shelter, and medicine all on their own from the land that they stewarded. And so that very much inspired me. At the time, all of my grandmother's grandkids had had college degrees and my grandmother didn't. And I realized though, if the road shifted and we all were responsible for taking care of ourselves, my grandmother would be the most capable of taking care of herself without the push button first world culture at our hands. And so that very much inspired me to want to, those two things, to want to hop into the food world. I came home from North Carolina and dabbled into politics um, for a hot second, just like interning and things like that. And I met some very amazing people and people with um, very kind hearts, contrary to popular opinion. But I learned quickly that even with that type of person being in politics, the way that the systems are set up in politics, only so many people can benefit from them. And so somebody's always going to get the short end of the stick. In this case, it was the black and brown communities. And it's like that all throughout America and the world, to be honest. And so since I am of the black and brown community, I 
decided to try to do something different instead of just com- like complaining or anything like that. Because again, people who were actually doing it that I work with had genuine hearts indeed, but their capacity was limited. And so I was like, okay, so what can I do? And so I remembered that, you know, like food is a very major factor in just the reality of the world that we live in. We take it for granted because it's so easy to, to get in so many different forms, but it's very important. It's been important since the beginning of man. And so... I decided to see if I can hop into aquaculture in New Haven, getting born and raised in New Haven. And so luckily, even though we're in an urban city, I was able to find a few places to get me started to learn how to grow my own food. A couple of those places were at Yale. So the Yale Sustainable Food Project, shout out to them. And that's on like Edward Street, Edward Street Farm. I volunteered there. Also the Marsh Botanical Garden, shout out to them, volunteered there. I also did a program with New Haven Farm, shout out to them. They're now um, no longer, but they merged with uh, the New Haven Land Trust to create Gathering New Haven, which is the community garden scene in New Haven, pretty much. That was amazing. And then I actually settled down at Common Ground High School, um, which is over in like West Rock, Brookside area, if you're familiar with Brookside. And it's an amazing school. It's very, it's a charter school and it's located on the side of West Rock State Park. So that's their like backyard. I spent three and a half years there as a farmer and also as an environmental educator because of the state park. And I work with youth ranging from pre-K all the way up to college. The college kids were as volunteers or apprentices. I was the apprentice, worked my way up to assistant farm manager. And then with the youth, you know, we would take them into the forest, connect them in nature, learn about those types of things, and also bring them on the farm for different classes, math, like languages, different types of like science classes. And so I got all those skills. I learned how to grow over like 60 different things, not varieties of things, but 60 different crops uh, while there, which was amazing. And so when they approached me about possibly being the manager of the farm, I realized that I had learned what I wanted to learn to get back to my community. So instead of like pursuing that route, I decided to start Root Life, which is the second part of the question that you asked me. And Root Life is a single member LLC, um, agribusiness, and it involves a lot of the things that I said as far as youth programming, consultations, um, getting home gardens installed, agritourism, so even having like retreats and things like that, showing off different community garden spaces in New Haven. It's definitely centered around a local black and brown population, but it serves all people, particularly in New Haven County. But we have a reach around the world, Tanzania, Costa Rica. So yeah, indeed. We, wow, that's very impressive. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so my next question is... What is the importance of teaching youth how to garden and what's the importance of building urban gardens? Great question. The youth are our future and I've been teaching youth for, I'm 30, about to be 36 next month. I've been teaching youth since I was 14, so was like 22 years. And so I say that to say, not to brag or anything, but to say like I've seen youth grow up to become adults, to become bosses at this point. And like people who are dictating and determining what the world is like and and how we're moving and what's in and what's not in, how we're treating each other, things like that. And so, yeah, I've seen what 10 years can do. If you plant the seed, like farmer, (laughs) farmer jargon or whatever, if you plant that seed and watch it grow, you can have a positive effect. Even being an adult now, I think about all the things that happened in my youth that affect me as an adult and the way I think. And so it's very important. 
for youth to get involved in like gardening. Youth take to it. It's like recess to them. You can make it fun or you can make it feel like slavery. Like, you know, one of my main things when I was working with you was always ask them, like, does this feel like slavery to you? And they'd be like, no, this feels like recess. <laughs> we get to eat all we want. We get to play in the dirt. We get to chill. Like, you know, so it was just like, you know, just making it, making it fun and making it work is very important. And they learn. They learn all the issues um, that are going on in the world. They learn that they can change it. I've had parents come because I also incorporate like healthy eating and things like that. My parents come and literally pull me to the side like, all right, well, the kids are coming and saying they don't want to eat this no more. They don't want to eat that no more. Like, so you're going to have to tell me <laughs> how to like navigate this, you know? And it's like, you know, the kids are the ones changing the households, if that makes sense. And so, you know, not just waiting for that future change, but like the immediate change is happening. And it's easier to reach a child because they're not like programmed for like decades to be used to something and then like trying to not be used to it and invite something else in, like they're just sponges. So it's very important to reach the youth in that way. And you said the importance of urban gardens? Yeah. Yeah, urban gardens, very important. They're therapeutic, first off. They get communities together. They get people's sense of coming together to do something. Um, they allow, in a lot of spaces, to address like food apartheid issues. So getting healthy food to, to local residents in ways that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise because it's just not in their neighborhoods, in their area, in their cities. And so between the therapy, the access, and the just the community, those are the, I would say the top three most important things about urban gardens. Okay, and, and how is urban agriculture different from traditional farming? Good question. So... Traditional farming, um, we can think about that first. When people think about a farm, you think about acres of land, like just straight flat rows of like one crop, corn, soybeans, tomatoes, whatever. Like, you know, maybe some big hoop houses and stuff like that. Um, big tractors, big barns, things like that. And urban farming is something totally different in general. It costs way more to even acquire land in an urban area uh, for obvious reasons. And then the land that is available is not acres and acres because it's an urban area, if that makes sense. And so those two factors um, usually limit what the size of the urban farm is. So it's usually like uh, the size of a parking lot, if you're lucky, and the size of a backyard, if it's standard, like, you know. And then for some people who are truly underserved, like the size of like a, a piece of a backyard, if that makes sense, if they're lucky, or a corner, a corner inside their house in a tent or something, you know, growing salad greens or something. And so differences also include like zoning places that are traditional farm, like cities and towns and things like that. They understand and they allow that. You don't have neighbors right up on you. You can have animals do this and all types of stuff. Here, it's like, you know, it's hard to um, have a goat or something in the middle of York Street. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's rules and regulations around that. It's rules and regulations around what land can be used for residential purposes, what land can be used for commercial purposes, what land can be used for green purposes. Cities make money off of taxes, so they encourage more so the, um, like, uh, commercial and residential areas or, like, construction happening, so they can get taxes for that and make money. So there's a lot around that as well. And, you know, like structures blocks sunlight out. So, you know, it's harder to find ideal spaces to grow certain crops that need a certain amount of sunlight and 
rain and all types of stuff. The water could be contaminated um, in a lot of ways. The soil in New Haven is generally contaminated with lead. That's like the one of the major factors, among other things that can come from just construction. And so these things are well known, you know, we have lead abatement programs and all types of stuff. Um, lead was just used very much so, I believe in like the 40s through the 60s heavily, and then it started to get like kind of pushed back, even it was still being used after that. But for like, you know, like toys, one thing, but even more so like paintings, like of just like the house, like house paints and things like that. And so over the years, over the decades, as that stuff chips off, it hits the soil and like, you know, even playing in that soil sometimes because it's dangerous. So that's why we grow and raise beds a lot. So that costs infrastructure that costs money. Um, it also limits, you know, what you can do. And so, yeah, those things are the types of things that make urban farming different. So it's more, it's usually more diversity, I'm sorry, with your crops and things like that, because you have a little bit of space, so you have to make it all fit in. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you won't just grow all corn. Yeah. You'll indeed. grow maybe like some tomatoes, mm-hmm. you'll grow some mm-hmm. potatoes, mm-hmm. maybe you'll grow, I don't know, collards, lettuce, things like that. Indeed. And if you're, if you're really hip, you'll grow like, if you want to grow corn, you'll grow like corn, beans, and squash. Like you'll, you'll start companion planting. It's what they call it. It's a term if anyone wants to look it up. And there's like lists of like what grows well together and why. That's actually very interesting. <laughs> yes. Okay. So what's your favorite crop to grow? Ooh, my favorite crop to grow? That's a hard question. Yes, it is. I have so many. Um, if I had to pick one, it would probably be collard greens. Really? really? Yeah. <laughs> I love collard greens. <laughs> I hear those from seed for the first time this nice. summer. Awesome. Indeed. They get so huge. Yeah, they do. And usually you don't see them that huge in the store because it's all about, you know, time is money. And so they don't let them get that huge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's actually a very good choice. (laughs) Okay. So let's get back to, I guess, a little bit of serious topic. Mm -hmm. Does being a black farmer impact your work in any way? And if so, how does it inform your attitudes about the land? Mm. Being a black farmer definitely impacts um, my work. Both sides of my family, I can trace back to at least the 1600s to the American South. And so Virginia and Georgia in particular. And so my family has been into farming up to that point. Actually, on both sides, the disconnect came with my parents' generation. So I'm only like one generation removed from actually living off the land. And it's crazy because I never realized that until like recently, even when I started farming, like it never really clicked. Like I'm literally just one generation over living from the land. And so knowing all the things that... uh are associated with like agriculture in America from slavery to uh, stealing land or taking land away from um, the indigenous populations that were here. And like all the way up to after slavery was done, like the sharecropping energy. And even after that, like uh, just the discrimination or even during and after that, the discrimination from like the USDA, FSA, uh, when it comes to um, providing resources for African-American farmers in particular over the years during the Jim Crow era especially and how a lot of land was lost by those types of practices, by straight outright force, like on some Tulsa, Oklahoma type energy, or um, just by uh, deceptiveness of like private industry looking for land. So, you know, they'll come to the removed generation who doesn't really understand the value of uh, the land, but it's like inherited. 
know, come to them and like, you know, with the million dollar setup, like super like rich lawyers and politicians and all types of people who have like investment, investment, these types of things. And they'll come and convince you to, you know, give you a lump sum that's nowhere near worth the quality of the land. And, you know, when you're struggling and you don't know any better, it's like, you know, those deceptive practices work. And so, you know, that story is prevailing. Like, it's crazy how prevailing it is from like everybody I know who has roots in the deep south. Like, and I'm not saying that in exaggeration. It's crazy. Like, even if people still have some land, they only have some of what they had, if that makes sense. And statistically speaking, you can look up the numbers, it, it shows. So it's not even a surprise, if that makes sense. But um, so that's definitely affected that even like when I got into agriculture, and this is not to, um, you know, bash anyone that I've been able to work with in agriculture is just the way the system is set up overall. The amount of money you make as like an apprentice or a starting off farmer or anything like that as a, and that's if you're like, you know, a mayor, like resident, like, you know, because people who are coming from other countries now get paid way more, like way less. I mean, like it's unimaginable, but even like being a, you know, U.S. citizen and starting off, it's like, it's similar to sharecropping. So sharecropping, um, if you're not familiar, like uh, would be like once slavery ended, a lot of people, African-Americans didn't want to migrate north, still wanted to be and do what they were used to doing, um, which is agriculture, not necessarily as slaves, but it's in our blood and it's something that we enjoy doing, um, historically speaking, and that we're really good at doing. That's one of the reasons why we were target for, targeted for like slavery. And so basically they would stay on the land of the plantation owner in exchange for their labor and they would get paid for the crops that they were able to produce, but the rates that they were getting would often leave them in debt by the end of the year. And so they would kind of like be trapped in these systems. So it's like slavery all over again. You know, you just, you're owned by somebody else because you're like, that's this crazy debt. And so um, it's similar because like, you know, working, you're getting like a minimum wage for like your farming and it's like not enough to, to pay for our apartment. Like, you know what I mean? With the roommate, you know, let alone the utilities that come with it, um, your food. But it's like you're not you're not working or the people who you're working for doesn't own the land you live on. But if you look at it from like a bigger system, it's all like playing, interplaying with each other, even if it's not intentional. And so it's like it's the same energy. You're in debt. Like, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, so it's like, yeah. How do you break out of that as an urban farmer? Good question. Um, I feel like this is something that I'm doing as we speak. Uh, I know some people who have definitely done it and like kind of like got their own land and moved to like, you know, spaces outside of like, like suburban or rural spaces. Because there's a lot of that, like literally. Staying urban and being successful as an urban farmer is like slightly difficult. I've been blessed because of what I represent. As far as like being community oriented, being African-American, being a, a, a native resident of the city and community that I serve, I have a lot of energy that supports me. And then also having the networks that range outside of New Haven. There are a lot of like initiatives going on to strengthen black and brown food system networks. And, you know, like black and brown people are the number one consumers in America. Everyone knows that. It's a, it's a, it's a statistic that's out there, out there. And so, you know, that that doesn't not include food, if that makes sense. And so it's like, you know, there's definitely a market to tap into. It's also specialty niches. Like I, I sell microgreens, 
which are high in crop, not really taken in by <laughs> underserved communities, but you know, it, it brings revenue for me to be able to grow other things and subsidize the the educational piece. I've made more money off of educating people how to grow their own food than actually growing food for people. At this point, I'm looking to switch that and like, you know, level up both of those. But yeah, that's the truth. And I feel like it's necessary because it's like, you know, giving back, I've actually made more money than just trying to grow food. Wow. If that makes sense. Yeah, indeed. It's just been blessed. It's a blessing. And I guess it could be a model around it if I thought about it really deeply for people to follow. But a lot of it is like just being genuine and sincere and not giving up. Because there were times where it was just like, hey, I'm living off a bare minimum, but I know where I'm going, you know? And that's like a story that a lot of people go through regardless of what they do. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. Just the confidence that everything's going to work out. Valid. Indeed. So with that point, I'm I'm wondering what the relationship is between mm-hmm. urban agriculture and food justice. Do yes. you work with any initiatives or community fridges that promote food security? Good question. Um, so yes, over the years, I definitely have, and I still do. It just switches off because the way the infrastructure is in New Haven, it's like, it's got to get in where you fit in. You know, a lot of times things shift, like people shift, organization shift, uh, land ownership shifts. And so over the years, I definitely have church that I grew up in, Faith Temple, New Holland Ivy on the corner. They give away a lot of food, they do feedings as well. I started a garden last year there, so looking forward to really like like bringing it all together that way. The Armory Community Garden over on um, at 290 Golf, across the street from Golf Street Park. Uh, we do a lot of growing there, do a lot of giving away there. And so we've given to like fish, we've given to the uh, people that are at the church across the street, I believe it's Bethel. People just walking by, it's always people walking by in the community gardener. So we distribute that in that way. Where else have I grown? Oh, 333 Valley Street over in West Hills. It's a community center for that community. And so definitely grown food in the new new farm, I guess you can call it. It's kind of huge that we started a couple years ago. Finally really got it up and running um, last season and even more so this season. So be on the lookout that, you know, food gets distributed as well. So it's a lot of different like areas of food distribution. A lot of times it's like, because it's community oriented, like we don't really have to like set up like the the middleman systems. Cause it's like, we just know people, we just call them literally from the phone. Like, yo, come <laughs> with this food. We know you give out food, you give out food. And like, you know, cause we have these networks. Like we used to do this before it was a, a official industry, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, indeed. So. Mm-hmm. And so it's a community. Yeah, literally. I love that. And that's a blessing. That's one reason why I've been able to be successful. I think I mentioned that, but like being a part of the community that I serve, like I can literally reach out and not step outside of my community if I really wanted to and be successful mm-hmm. as far as who I'm selling my food to. So a lot of people can't do that because they're coming from different places and they have to establish themselves and versus like, you know, I can ask my mother to ask all her peers that she grew up with yeah. that are like very veterans that know everybody else in New Haven, you know? So you have to be like tapped into the network. Yes, indeed, in a real way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you do any CSAs? Um, yes. So it depends on the year. Indeed, <laughs> This year I'm getting it back up and running. So be on the lookout. That should be up and running actually um, by mid-March. And wow. yeah, indeed, we're going to do a winter one and then we're going to hop into um, a traditional summer one. Um, and the CSAs have tiers. So you have a traditional tier, which is just like produce. And then also partnering with local black businesses to incorporate tea blends and juices, fresh pressed juices. Also like crystal jewelry, sea moss and 
like beauty products. So healthcare, like skincare products as well. So there's different like subscription packages that we're working on. So I'm excited about that. And then in the summer, once things are growing, it's like you really get like just different tiers of just straight produce, if that makes sense. Indeed. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And before... Mm -hmm. They don't know this, but our, like before our recording crash, <laughs> you mentioned something about how CSAs have been a way mm -hmm. for Black farmers to make money. Yes, indeed. So historically speaking, um, the CSAs were were started by African Americans, particularly Booker T. Watley and his wife, and uh, her name she, like it's like slips my mind at the moment. But they were community leaders. I forgot where in the South, but it was definitely in the South. And basically because of the discrimination that I mentioned earlier with like um, USDA, FSA being able to um, provide resources for people like funding for like seeds or like uh, like equipment and infrastructure to get the growth season started for the farmer because they weren't, they were like always at the last one on the list, even if they made it on the list to get these resources. What they decided to do was tap into our communities. And so what they decided to create was a CSA because the model of a CSA, generally speaking, is like a subscription service. Like you pay up front, like, so for the whole season, let's say you're going to pay like $250. That could break down to like 10 weeks, $25 a week. You get like two bags of groceries, depending on what's in season. We guarantee two bags of groceries or guarantee this much poundage of groceries for that. But you pay it up front so that the farmer can get everything they need from the seeds to labor to all these other types of stuff to be able to produce that over the season instead of trying to wait until the season is over. Because the way farming works is everything kind of like grows at once in a certain way. So it's like, I can't just grow $25 up here and sell it and then have that help me grow $25 if I need it all at once. So I can plant it all at once and get the yield all at once, if that makes sense. So CSA is definitely something that, you know, our genius came up with and created it works like it's so many things that work as far as like this community. That's why I advocate like, you know, I'm really, really stepping back into um, being very key components of our own food system. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Mm -hmm. And then you're free to go. <laughs> Are there any projects that you're working on right now that we should know about? Good question. So projects, projects. Um there are <laughs> in New Haven. I'm gonna keep it local. There are a few different community gardens that people should pull up to. I think I mentioned them already, but 333 Valley Street um, in Westville, if you're in that area, 290 Gulf Street, which is the Armory Community Garden. Saturdays from 12 to 2 is that workday. And we're starting in May, like May 1st. So you can pull up starting then. It'll be more. I'll give my Instagram so you can follow me for the flyers and stuff like that. And then also the feedings are happening at the church that will be happening. Um, it's something to look forward to as well. Also, you can find me at the uh, City Seed Farmers Markets uh, selling my microgreens and also other produce. One of the only local growers. So that's nice to have indeed. And... Everything else, just be on the lookout for. I follow my social media. Okay, if I give it? Yes, please plug. Okay, cool. So my IG is at root, R-O-O-T dot life, L-I-F-E, at root life. My Facebook is root life, L-L-C. So facebook.com slash root life, L-L-C. My YouTube is root life. And I think that's all the social media. But if you follow particularly my Instagram, you will be updated with everything and you can see everything that I've been able to do. I've been documenting everything I've been telling you about for over a decade and it's all there literally. So hopefully it gives you inspiration or insight if you want to 
do it yourself. If anyone's interested in becoming a, a urban grower, urban farmer, um, feel free to reach out. If anyone wants to volunteer, feel free to reach out. Anyone can reach out, feel free. I have a lot of resources for black and brown farmers that I can plug them into if they're interested in getting into any type of agribusiness. It can be growing, it could be like food, restaurant type energy. It could be distribution, anything in between. Feel free to reach out so that connections can be made because that's one of the things that I'm really about. Thank you for joining us for this journey as we discuss the impact that urban agriculture has on New Haven communities. Daishan explained how community gardens combat food apartheid and generate belonging in New Haven and other cities. We also learned about the difficulties involved in urban farming. Read more about urban farming in my article, We Grow Community, How Urban Agriculture Has Sprouted in New Haven.